This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio, and your source for all the latest news and information relating to mental health. If it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, this is where you'll hear about it first, without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, and along the way, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric illness and needing treatment for it. And we have an item on tonight's show. In fact, the first item will directly address that issue. But before we get to that, I want to give you a way to contact me in case you have any mental health-related questions yourself. Perhaps you're dealing with a problem with your mood or your emotional state or someone close to you is, and you're not sure what to do to get help or you've tried to and it hasn't gone well. Uh, I'd like to be a resource for you, so please send me all your mental health-related questions, or maybe you just have some questions or comments or feedback about something that I've discussed on this show. Uh, whatever the issue you want to get in touch with me about, the way to do that is via email, and that email address for me is Dr. Scott, spelled D-R-S-C-O-T, at Radio Sandy Springs. Dot com. That's R-A-D-I-O-S-A-N-D-Y-S-P-R-I-N-G-S dot com. And I assure you, any and all identifying information will be kept strictly confidential. And just the question itself, in the barest outline without any clearly identifying information, will be read on the air. Now, let's get to our first item, okay? As I always say in the introduction to the show... Reducing the stigma associated with mental illness is one of my main motivations and goals for psychiatry today. And just from last week comes a report that the stigma of mental illness remains a barrier to treatment. The stigma often associated with mental illness prevents many people from getting the care they need. Although one in four people has some form of mental health disorder, a new study found that in Europe and the United States, up to 75% of those affected do not receive the treatment they need. If left untreated, certain mental health problems, such as psychosis, depression, bipolar disorder, and anxiety disorder, could get worse. There is now clear evidence that stigma has a toxic effect by preventing people seeking help for mental health problems. The profound reluctance to be a, quote, mental health patient, unquote, means people will put off seeing a doctor for months, years, or even at all, which in turn delays their recovery. The study was published on February 25th, in the journal Psychological Medicine, researchers collected information from 144 studies involving 90,000 people around the world. 
stigma ranked as the fourth highest of ten barriers to care. Aside from the stigma of using mental health services or being treated for mental illness, the participants also reported feelings of shame and embarrassment as reasons for not seeking care. Others were afraid to let anyone know they have a mental health issue or were concerned about confidentiality. Some people with mental illness either felt they could better handle their problem on their own or believed they didn't actually need help. Among those most affected by the stigma associated with mental illness were young people, those from minority ethnic groups, members of the military, and healthcare professionals. Healthcare professionals, uh, uh, clearly there's a, a source of embarrassment or shame there in their seeking help. And of course in the military we know there's the fear that it will jeopardize their career or lower their esteem, their uh, fellow enlisted men or officers. This study clearly demonstrates that mental health stigma plays a big and an important role in preventing people from accessing treatment. They found that the fear of disclosing a mental health condition was a particularly common barrier. So what do we need to do? We need to support people to talk about their mental health problems, continue anti-stigma campaigns, and hope that this will eventually mean that people are going to be more likely to seek help. It's going to take more and more people speaking out, and all of us play a role in this too, whether any of us have a mental health problem or not, supporting those who do in getting help for it and being able to speak out and share about it. Studies like this show that we have a very, very long way to go. Now, let's turn our attention to this study about the psychological side effects of antidepressants. The reputation of antidepressants and especially the side effects that they often have might in some way contribute to people's reluctance to seek mental health treatment even if they acknowledge they have a problem and might benefit from help. The fact is antidepressant medications allow millions of people to live more fulfilling, happier lives. But, of course, they do have their side effects, some of which may be more common than once thought. In a recent study, most people reported that their antidepressant medication had helped alleviate their depression, yet many of these participants had experienced one or more side effects from their antidepressant. These side effects included sexual difficulties, emotional numbness, and feelings of aggression. When they refer to emotional numbness, that means that instead of feeling the normal ups and downs of emotional life, people's emotions are dulled or blunted or numbed. For example, even on medication, someone should experience joy and happiness when something joyful happens. Instead, sometimes people on certain antidepressants 
experience feelings like, oh gee, isn't that nice? And likewise, even on antidepressant medication, if someone hears of or experiences something sad, they should be able to feel sad, even cry when appropriate. Instead, sometimes people on antidepressants don't experience those feelings and simply say, well, gee, isn't that too bad? What a shame. Now, the research team placed an anonymous survey online. This was done in New Zealand, and there were questions related to how well people felt their antidepressant medications worked. By the way, psychiatry is practiced fairly similarly in New Zealand uh, as it is in Australia and here in the United States. Now, they ended up with 1,829 usable surveys, and they designed the study to explore the experience of the participants' physical, emotional, and interpersonal effects. The survey had 20 questions related to adverse effects of antidepressant medications. A total of eight side effects were reported by more than half of the participants. The survey revealed that 62% of individuals claimed to experience sexual difficulties, 60% reported feeling emotionally numb, 52% said that they did not feel like themselves, 42% claimed to care less about others, and 59% failed to achieve orgasm. The responses also showed that 39% of participants reported thoughts of suicide, while 29% reported feeling aggressive. Despite all of these side effects, 82% of responders reported that their antidepressant medications had helped alleviate their depression. Now, there is so much in there that I want to go over with you and explain further and go into much greater depth than the article does. And, and I can do that with the benefit of my experience in prescribing all these medications for patients and dealing with side effects. Uh, first of all, I think I'll start with the last point. It's quite remarkable that despite the fact that so many people are having these very difficult side effects that 82% said they would that their medication helped alleviate their depression. Now, it doesn't the article doesn't say that that many people would happily choose to stay on their medication. Uh, but <clears throat> despite all the side effects, that many people are getting relief from their depression. You might wonder, well, why would people stay on the medicine if they're having all these side effects? And I think a lot of these people would tell you if, if you asked them the question or if the researchers did, well, yeah, the side effects are uncomfortable. I'd rather not be dealing with them, but this is still better than dealing with the depression. Many people who suffer from depression are so devastated by it that they're so happy to be relieved of it that they willingly put up with these very uncomfortable side effects because being uh, in a state of relief from depression is better than uh, even with the side effects than, than when they're depressed. Now, a lot of the side effects that were the most common ones are due to the mechanism of action 
of the vast majority of most common antidepressants. Okay, most common antidepressants nowadays act by enhancing the function of the serotonin chemical in the brain. Serotonin is one of many important brain hormones that help regulate mood. But the problem with most antidepressants, and that could be the SSRIs or the SNRIs, the serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, if you push too hard on serotonin for too long, you can suppress dopamine. These hormones don't act in isolation. They have interconnections. And if you suppress dopamine, there goes pleasure, reward, sex. So there's your lack of orgasm, your lack of sexual functioning, and your emotional numbing. All right, well, we've got to take a commercial break here. Lots more to talk about where this study is concerned. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott be right back after this break. Come on, follow Sniffles to Atlanta's go-to center for breathing easy. Do you suffer from chronic sinus headaches, recurrent sinusitis, facial pain or pressure, and chronic congestion? Well, balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. Followsniffles.com. We treat the problem, not the symptom. Chronic sinus symptoms, gone. This could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy, back to work the next day, and it's done under local anesthesia. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Follow me and breathe easy. Followsniffles.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is Dr. Scott Bay, and you're listening to the show that gives you all the latest mental health-related information. Right before the break, we are talking about a very interesting, very important study documenting the side effects of antidepressants and the remarkable fact that while most people get well, they're putting up with a lot of very uncomfortable side effects. And literally right before the break, I was explaining how serotonin is the main chemical behind the action of most antidepressants. But if you push too hard on that, you suppress dopamine, which is your pleasure-reward sex chemical. And that's why the side effects wind up including sexual difficulties, especially lack of orgasm, and feeling emotionally numb. Now, the feelings of suicide side effects, well, it says 39% felt that that was a side effect of their antidepressant. Okay, now, this is a very high number. Most of the time, this percentage is thought to be much lower, and that's rather alarming, rather disturbing. 
29% reported feeling aggressive. How is that? Where does that come from? Well, some antidepressants also enhance the function of norepinephrine. For example, the SNRIs, uh, that's Effexor, Pristique, Cymbalta, and uh, the newest one, Fetsima, they not only enhance the function of serotonin, they also enhance the function of norepinephrine. Now, there are some people who can't tolerate that stimulation of norepinephrine. Oh, I almost forgot. Very importantly, Welbutrin, which is not only prescribed for depression, but it's also prescribed for smoking cessation. That also stimulates norepinephrine, though it doesn't affect serotonin. And again, some people, just because of their genetics, because of the individual variation in their norepinephrine pathways in their brain, cannot tolerate it being stimulated by any of these medications. And if so, they start to get aggressive. What this tells me that all these people are having all these side effects is there's something very wrong in their doctor-patient relationship. And I'll explain what I mean. First of all, any good psychiatrist or physician prescribing these antidepressants should do what I always do, which is always ask patients if they're having any uncomfortable side effects along these lines and to make sure they're able to experience joy and pleasure and to make sure their medication is not ruining their sex life and for goodness sake to make sure they're not having thoughts of suicide. If the prescribing physician is not paying attention to these issues, they are not doing their job. Now, there may also be some patient-related factors in the doctor-patient relationship leading to the side effects not being discovered and discussed and addressed. And by that, I mean, like I was saying before, some people are just so happy to have some relief from their depression, they are not going to complain about side effects. Because they fear if something is changed about their treatment to address the side effects, then they may go back to suffering from depression. And for them, it's not worth it. They'd rather have the side effects and relief from the, the depression. Well, so those are some of the factors behind this alarmingly high rate of patients suffering from side effects from their antidepressants. Uh, my approach is that the cure should never be worse than the disease. So if someone is having their antidepressant medication ruin their sex life, then either the dose is too high or it's not the right medication for them. Likewise, if the medication is making them feel dulled emotionally or numbed emotionally, again, that's even a more obvious giveaway. The dose is too high, uh, or perhaps it's the wrong medication for them. And certainly something is not right if the medication is making somebody f have suicidal thoughts that they didn't necessarily have without the medication, or thoughts or feelings of aggression. Uh, that is a glaring sign that the person is not on the right medication. 
So the findings are disturbing. Uh, it means that patients either don't feel free to discuss their concerns about side effects with their prescribing doctor and or the prescribing doctors are not doing a good enough job soliciting information about side effects, monitoring for side effects, and assuring patients that they can still gain relief from depression without having to suffer from side effects. It may take a little extra work in terms of finding something that's a better fit for that person's body chemistry, but in my opinion, no one should have to sacrifice so much in order to gain relief from depression. Now, the study authors noted that 36%, just over a third of the participants, claimed that the prescribing physician had not told them about potential adverse effects of their antidepressant medication, also a disturbing finding. And they also found that nearly 58% of participants reported drowsiness. That can be addressed readily. Uh, medication that makes a patient drowsy is best taken in the late afternoon, early evening, not at bedtime. I'm talking about more like 5, 6, 7 p.m. That way the drowsiness is most likely not going to affect someone during normal waking business hours. 58% also experienced dry mouth, extremely common side effect. It's probably listed as a side effect of almost every prescription and over-the-counter medication there is. 20% reported diarrhea associated with their antidepressant. Uh, again, I would hope that is something they could discuss with their physician. Uh, that's an indication that some kind of change needs to be made. I don't think any patient should have to put up with that just to be able to feel free from depression. And while the biological side effects of antidepressants, such as weight gain and nausea, are well documented, psychological and in, excuse me, interpersonal issues have largely been ignored or denied. And from this data, you can see they appear to be alarmingly common. Effects such as feeling emotionally numb and caring less about other people are a major concern. The study also found that people are not being told about this when prescribed the drugs. Well, the authors concluded that their findings suggest that prescribing physicians should educate patients about the pervasive and potentially demoralizing effects on one's ability to feel positive emotions or to feel anything at all or about the potential effects on their relationships with other people. They're finding that over a third of respondents reported suicidal thinking as a result of taking the antidepressants suggests that earlier studies may have underestimated the problem. Now, a major flaw, a major potential flaw of the study, I should say, which the authors acknowledge, is that their study allowed participants to self-report, and self-reports are notoriously not accurate and therefore may not be representative of the true facts 
uh, of what is going on in the general population who are taking antidepressants. And it was published on February 26th in the journal Psychiatry Research. Well, I think the take-home point here clearly that, yes, prescribers need to do a better job informing and warning patients about potential side effects, and they also need to reassure patients that they needn't have to accept putting up with these unacceptable side effects just to feel relief from depression. They ought to reassure their patients, as I do mine, that we'll find something that's a better fit between the benefits of feeling less depressed and whatever side effects there are. Someone has to put up with dry mouth, okay, that's one thing. But if they have to put up with not caring about people, not being able to experience joy or sadness appropriately, uh, not being able to have an adequate sex life, uh, to me that's unacceptable and needs to be addressed. All right. Well, now let's have a psychiatry and the law update. An October 2014 trial date was set for the accused Colorado theater gunman. A Colorado judge last week set a new trial date in October for James Holmes, the former neuroscience graduate student accused of killing 12 moviegoers in a shooting spree at a suburban Denver cinema in 2012. The county district court judge set the October 14 date after a previous February time frame was vacated because of ongoing legal wrangling over Holmes' sanity and other issues. Holmes is 26 years old. He's pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity to multiple counts of first-degree murder and attempted murder stemming from the July 2012 shooting spree that left 12 people dead and 70 others injured. Defense lawyers have conceded that Holmes was the lone gunman but have argued that their client was suffering a psychotic episode when he went on the rampage during a screening of a Batman film. Prosecutors have said they will seek the death penalty if they secure a conviction, although their ability to pursue that penalty could be tied to the results of court-ordered mental evaluations. Now, he underwent a court-ordered psychiatric examination last summer. The results have mostly been kept confidential, but prosecutors sought a second evaluation because they said the first had numerous deficiencies. Well, we're going to have to take another commercial break here. When we come back, more on the Holmes trial situation and more on mentally ill and violence. We'll be right back with more. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that sleep is an important weapon against infection? Sleep is important because it is restorative. During sleep, known as REM, the body recuperates and resets. For example, the immune system increases its activity and stress hormones drop. 
There is a correlation between sleep deprivation and frequent colds. The average adult should get seven to eight hours of uninterrupted sleep per night, and a child needs more since they are growing. Sleep hygiene is important to set a good foundation. Techniques to promote good quality restorative sleep include going to bed at the same time at night, avoiding alcohol or caffeine prior to bedtime, avoiding exercise in the evening, reading to a young child at bedtime, avoidance of drinking fluids late in the evening, and avoidance of taking decongestants at bedtime. If you are having problems sleeping more than once a week, you should see a doctor for further evaluation. Please join me Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. Membership. Are you an IHC member? Access to the Institute for Healthcare Consumerism's breaking news, industry trends, expert blogs, and networking with IHC's industry-wide member community. IHC membership puts you at the focal point of the dynamic health and benefit industry, allowing you to join the conversation and collaborate with industry stakeholders and your peers. Your IHC membership includes a subscription to Healthcare Consumerism Solutions Magazine, Healthcare Exchange Solutions Magazine, annual publications Healthcare Solutions Superstars, and Healthcare Solutions Outlook, a free white paper, and much more. Sign up as a free IHC member or $99 premium IHC member today at www.theihcc.com. That's www.theihcc.com. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. Want to remind those of you who have questions or comments about anything that I've discussed on tonight's or a previous show, or you have a mental health related question, please send all that to me via email at this email address, Dr. Scott, spelled D R S C O T at RadioSandySprings.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-S-A-N-D-Y-S-P-R-I-N-G-S.com. We are in a Psychiatry and the Law update. We're talking about the James Holmes trial. He was the neuroscience student who committed the Batman movie theater massacre in July of 2012 in Colorado. Now, last week, the judge ruled that the first mental health examination he had was incomplete and inadequate and ordered a new evaluation. But the judge denied a request by government lawyers, in other words, prosecutors, that they be allowed to select the new evaluator. The second exam he's going to have will focus on his state of mind at the time of the killings. Again, his defense lawyers are claiming he was in a psychotic episode when he went on this killing spree, and their defense is uh, going to be not guilty by reason of insanity, whereas the prosecution are going for the death penalty. 
An independent psychiatrist or forensic psychologist who has yet to be appointed must submit a report to the judge no later than this July the 11th. Now, it's clear this person is insane. And, you know, what sane person would commit such a heinous act? And I think even without knowing the results of the evaluation... Uh, I, I think it's quite plausible he was in the midst of a psychotic episode when he committed these acts. But being mentally ill doesn't necessarily translate into being not guilty by reason of insanity. These are not medical or psychiatric considerations. These are legal considerations. And in a legal situation... The definitions are different and the judgments are made in a different way. We won't know how all of this is going to play out until obviously this fall. But in any case, that leads me into discussing this other this study of mentally ill and violence. Now, it turns out that despite the reports of these mass shootings by the mentally ill, like the one we just talked about that took place in Colorado a couple of years ago, it turns out that the mentally ill are much more often victims of violence than perpetrators. This is a known fact. And here is another new study documenting that yet again, that people with mental illness are much more likely to be the victims of violence than the perpetrators of it. Within a six-month period of time, Nearly one-third of adults with a mental health disorder are victimized, according to a new study. Researchers also found a strong association between enduring a violent act and committing one. They suggested that reducing violence against mentally ill people could help protect others in the community as well. We hear about the link between violence and mental illness in the news, but the mentally ill themselves are in danger. And I think it's interesting they point out that the mentally ill who are victims of violence are more likely to commit violence. The researchers examined surveys completed by almost 4,500 adults with mental illness about committing violence and being the victim of violence in the previous six months. The information compiled included findings from five previous studies that focused on a variety of issues, such as antipsychotic medications and treatment approaches. These previous studies also questioned adults with mental health issues about acting out violently and being the victim of violence. The study was published online recently in the American Journal of Public Health. It revealed that about 24%, almost a quarter, of people with mental illness had committed a violent act within the previous six months. Adults with mental illness who become violent are more likely to act out in a home setting then out in public. Most of these acts 
63.5% of them, in fact, took place in a home. Only 2.6% of these acts of violence occurred at school or the workplace. Meanwhile, a higher percentage of these adults with mental illness were the victim of violence. The study showed that nearly 31% were victimized during this same time period. Of these people, about 44% said they faced violence on more than one occasion. They also found that participants who had been victims of violence were 11 times more likely to commit violence. This highlights the need for more robust public health interventions that are focused on violence. It shouldn't just be about preventing adults with mental illness from committing violent acts. It should also be about protecting those at risk of being victimized. Preventing violence against the mentally ill may drive down instances of violence committed by the mentally ill. It's a very important point to make, and they're talking, of course, about the recent focus on preventing the mentally ill from committing violence by making sure there are adequate protections in place that prevent the seriously mentally ill from being able to legally purchase firearms. But I think even though the study points out the mentally ill are far more likely to be victims than committers of violence, that's cold comfort to those who have been victimized by the seriously mentally ill who have committed violent acts. And now I want to turn my attention to some very, very disturbing news about physicians who are too often missing the warning signs of suicide. Nearly 37,000 Americans kill themselves each year, according to federal statistics. Somewhere between three and four people will take their lives during the time it takes my show to air this evening. But many of those deaths might have been prevented if doctors had been better at picking up on the warning signs of suicide, according to a new study. According to the United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta, suicide remains the 10th leading cause of death in the United States and is the leading cause of injury-related death, recently topping deaths tied to car accidents. However, the new study finds that physicians often fail to spot mental health problems in people who commit suicide, even though most of these people consult with doctors or other health providers in the months before they kill themselves. Now, this is obviously shocking and disturbing, but even more so when you take into account this is a well-known fact, this is not a new finding, it's just that this recent study is uh, reminding us that this is the case and continues to be. The research team looked at the medical records of almost 5,900 health plan members 
living in eight states who committed suicide between the years of 2000 to 2010. 83% of them had received medical care within the year prior to killing themselves, and 20% had seen a health care worker the week before they died. But they were diagnosed with a mental health problem less than half the time, only 45%. The data clearly tell us that although a large proportion of those who committed suicide had health system contact in the year before their death, a mental health diagnosis was commonly absent. Greater efforts need to be made to assess mental health and suicide risk. And because most visits occurred in primary care or medical specialty settings, suicide prevention in these clinics would likely reach the largest number of individuals. The study is in the February issue of the Journal of General Internal Medicine, which of course focuses on primary care. Now, a lot to comment on here. First of all, we talked before about the tremendous stigma of mental illness, right? That is still a problem. And so one of the factors that go into the situation where people who are suicidal are seen by a physician don't get a mental health diagnosis, again, people are reluctant to disclose this because of the stigma of becoming a mental health patient, concerns about that stigma, concerns about confidentiality. It may also be on the physician side, primary care physicians are reluctant to ask questions related to mental health issues. Uh, because they feel that they don't have the time or resources to be able to adequately address them. And unfortunately, in most cases, even if they identify a mental health problem that's serious and realize that the patient needs the help of a psychiatrist, they need specialty care, in most cases, primary care physicians have a great deal of trouble getting their patients access to psychiatric care. Because even if the patient were willing to accept it, and in many cases they're not, no, I don't want to see a psychiatrist. Again, the stigma issue. There are too few of us, and it takes too long for primary care physicians to get patients in to see us. Again, it's they're coming up against the failures and the deficiencies in the mental health care system in the United States. Very sad fact. And we'll have more unfortunate facts about suicide and a U.S. landmark when we come back after this commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. 
In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. As president-elect of the Georgia Society of Addiction Medicine, I urge you to contact your senators here in Georgia and ask them to vote no on House Bill 885, the so-called medical marijuana bill. For full details about the pros and cons of this bill, please check the Atlanta Healing Center website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. We do not want to open this door in our state. Thank you. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio and your source for all mental health-related news. Now, before the break, we were talking about how physicians are not recognizing that their patients are suicidal for various different reasons. And most people who commit suicide have contact with a health professional of some type, certainly in the months and in many cases the week before they die. Now, we have a sad milestone about suicide related to a major landmark in the United States, the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, California. In 2013, there were 46 suicides. 46 people in 2013 leapt to their deaths off of the Golden Gate Bridge. In what appears to be the deadliest year for suicides at the California landmark, that, according to a watchdog group last Tuesday, the Bridge Rail Foundation, which tracks fatalities at the 4,200-foot-long span, said the high number of suicides demonstrates the need for a safety net, literally a, a safety net, to be installed to make it more difficult for would-be jumpers to take their own lives there. And a board member with the organization was quoted as saying, I know it won't be built soon, and that's the most frustrating thing about this. We hate to see any more 17-year-olds or 86-year-olds jump. It's just not right. The road surface of the suspension bridge towers more than 220 feet above the entrance to the San Francisco Bay, and the span ranks as one of the world's most frequently chosen sites for public suicides. It is also one of the most lethal, with jumps from the bridge nearly always proving fatal. And that's why a net would help. You might say, well, okay, fine, so if you put a net there, they'll stop jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge and... They'll find some other way to kill themselves. Someone who is that determined will find some other way. You're right. But on the other hand, it isn't right to just leave 
this uh, easily accessible method in a public place and not do something about it, something to prevent it. A spokeswoman for the Golden Gate Bridge Highway and Transportation District confirmed that 46 people had committed suicide at the bridge last year. That was the highest annual total since at least 2000 when they began keeping an unofficial count. Police officers or others had intervened to stop another 118 people from leaping off the span in the same year. Now, the last year's suicide tally up from 33 in 2012 was the highest they could confirm since the bridge was built in 1937. The previous record was believed to be 40 or 41 in a single year. An analysis published by the San Francisco Chronicle found 40 suicides occurred at the Golden Gate in 1977. Officials have drawn up plans to install a safety net beneath the span's sidewalks to catch people who jump, but are still seeking the estimated $66 million needed to construct it. In 2011, a firm was given $5 million to design the net. For now, officials work to prevent suicides with law enforcement officers on bicycle patrols. At any given time, two to four officers are on the bridge's sidewalks, according to a spokesman for the California Highway Patrol. Authorities have offered no explanation for the high number of suicide jumpers last year. Suicides come in waves. It seems like some years are high, some years are low. The the, uh, economic downturn found that officers were frequently encountering suicidal business owners or people losing their homes. The total number of people who have jumped to their death from the bridge over the years is unknown, largely because of spotty record-keeping and because the bodies of some who jump are never recovered. Now, one official's own 20-year-old son is believed to have committed suicide at the Golden Gate in 2007 after he was reported missing and the car he drove was discovered near the bridge. A safety net would cut down on future fatalities by saving individuals from what is often an impulsive decision. And a spokesperson was quoted as saying, if we can give them the time to get through that crisis, then they can go back and get help or call someone. Well, that's the hope in any case, that if people are thwarted in their attempt to commit suicide in this manner, then that might prevent them from doing so impulsively. They might have a little more time to think about things and decide that they would try to get help as opposed to impulsively committing this act. Again, that is the hope. Uh, Clearly, I think despite the, the fact that once people have decided to do this, they're often quite determined. Uh, I do think it's worthy to try to 
prevent these deaths from happening in this manner. Uh, the authorities there are doing a lot more now than had been done in decades past. I recall quite vividly it made news when the authorities posted signs along the sidewalks on the bridge that included the phone number of suicide hotlines. And while it was certainly a worthy and important gesture, I wonder how often someone who was that desperate would stop to consider calling a suicide hotline instead of carrying out their plan. I like the fact that there are police patrols there, and it's very encouraging that they were able to save 118 lives last year. But losing 46, of course, uh, is unacceptable as well. And hopefully the funds needed to build the safety net will uh, come to fruition and the bridge will be made safe. Now, let's turn our attention uh, away from a very disturbing subject and talk about something that is a follow-up to an email question that I had from a listener several months ago. I had talked about sleep hygiene and how heavy exercise late in the evening is not recommended because it would disturb sleep. And a listener sent me an email with a link to an article where an author disputed that fact. And I talked about the particulars of that research and how it didn't necessarily refute the idea that late evening workouts are bad for your sleep. Well, I hope that listener is listening to this show because here's another study showing supposedly that evening workouts don't disturb sleep. All right, well, I will give it a fair reading, and then we'll go over the findings and see for ourselves. Couch potatoes looking for a reason to forego working out in the evening may no longer be able to use difficulty sleeping afterwards as an excuse, according to this recent study. Researchers found that people who exercised in the evening reported sleeping just as well as those who weren't active in the hours before bed. However, this is important. People who worked out in the morning reported getting the best sleep on average. Sleep recommendations suggest avoiding exercise prior to bed, but they found evidence to the contrary, suggesting that individuals need not avoid exercise at night. They analyzed Data from a 1,000 adults participating in a 2013 National Sleep Foundation Sleep in America poll. It was a phone and web-based questionnaire. They asked participants how well they felt they slept, how long they slept each night, how much time it took them to fall asleep, and whether they felt refreshed after waking up in the morning. They also asked about exercise habits, whether they worked out regularly, and if so, were they active in the morning, afternoon, or evening, and evening was considered to be within four hours of going to sleep. But what's important to point out here, it was a phone and web-based questionnaire. They asked participants to provide their own data. Now, <clears throat> based on the types of physical activity, like Tai Chi, running, or yard work, 
workouts were characterized by intensity as light, moderate, or vigorous. Vigorous exercise in the morning, those people were 88% more likely to report good sleep quality than non-exercisers and 44% less likely to say they woke up feeling unrefreshed. Moderate intensity morning exercisers were 53% more likely to say they slept well overall compared to non-exercisers. And the study, for those who are interested, was published in the journal Sleep Medicine. Now, experts say these studies' poll-based methods may not necessarily be the most accurate gauge of sleep quality. Self-reported sleep, whether good or bad, is not a very reliable predictor or indicator of what's actually happening by objective measures with a person's sleep. And therefore, one expert from the Mass. Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston said, I take with a grain of salt any survey-based studies such as this one. Although the National Sleep Foundation's sleep hygiene recommendations don't preclude pre-bedtime workouts, they do advise sticking to relaxing exercises such as yoga in the evening hours. Representatives from the National Sleep Foundation were not available for comment by those who had written about this study. It's important to remember that sleep is different for each person. What helps one person slumber may lead to insomnia for someone else. And that sleep hygiene recommendations are just that, things that might work in general. They're not written in stone. People who have trouble sleeping should be thoughtful and introspective about finding patterns in their own lives. Each patient may find by trial and error the best combinations of things to do or avoid. And with that, I've got to quickly wrap up tonight's show. I hope that until we get together again next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening.